Father, we do ask that you would be glorified in us today. Be glorified in the way in which we sing, Lord, in the strange way in which we are interacting with one another these days. Be glorified in us in the way in which we respond to your word. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would move in us by the power of your word, that it would change us, that it would call sinners to genuine salvation, that it would call people to not a, a lackluster, lackadaisical, lazy faith, but it would call them to true surrender, trusting only in Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us today that there is no neutrality when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Christ. It's either full surrender or nothing at all. And so, Lord, I pray that you teach us this by your word. We thank you for the words of Christ. We want to show our gratitude by responding to your word. Help us do this. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before we jump into our study this morning, I wanted to take a few moments to address uh, all that's going on in our country. You know, we, we are p- facing an unprecedented time in the life of our country. We, we've faced some of the, the items before. We faced uh, disease. We faced this way back in the Spanish flu. We faced uh, an ongoing war seemingly with no end. We faced that, of course, in Vietnam. Uh, we faced times of, of racial uh, turmoil, and of course, that was uh, mainly in the 60s, but it seems to go on and on. But it seems like all of these things have come to a climax right now all together, all at the same time. I was reading this week in my personal devotion in the book of Judges, and if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that uh, it's a spiral downward. The, the book of Judges is not just a, 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 a cycle. There is a ruthless cycle that the people of Israel sin, and they fall into paganism, and then they are uh, usually enslaved in some way, and then they cry out to God in some sort of repentance, and they return to God only to begin sinning again. And it got worse and worse. It's a spiral downward. And, and no, America is not the new Israel. America is not God's country in the same way that Israel was God's country where the Messiah would come from. But it is a template for an increasingly uh, sinful country and an increasingly godless society. And that's the story of Judges, Israel's downward path. Well, in the end of Judges, where I was reading, the, we have the worst of all stories. A man is traveling with his wife, only it's not really his wife, it's probably one of several of his concubines. That tells you something's wrong with this picture already. He's traveling with this concubine. They come late at night to a city, and they seek lodging there in that city, and they don't seem to find anybody, and they, they eventually find someone sort of distantly related to them, and that person allows them to come inside their house and stay. The, the man speaks to the owner of the house, and that man lets them in, and they get into the house. But no sooner had they gone into the house that a group of men come to the door and start banging on the door, wanting to have some sort of homosexual party with the new man, the new visitor. The people inside the house, they resist for a while, but finally, they give in by doing the worst thing possible, and that is to shove that concubine out and give that woman to do whatever those evil, wicked men wanted to do with her throughout the night. They had their way with that woman all night. 
And they were so abusive to her that eventually she died. This is murder. This murder was an outrage. This murder caused turmoil all across the country. People began to riot, and the mobs began to form. And eventually the country fell into civil war, tribes, people of different genetics, although they were all Jews, they were all of different tribes and families began to war against one another. By the end, I think over 50,000 people had died. Two things are obvious when you read the book of Judges. First is that need for, for justice, for mercy, for truth, for kindness, for righteousness. And even if that were to come through an imperfect leader, I think people knew something has to happen. Something has to give here. We've got to get our society back on track in terms of justice and righteousness. Eventually, God would give them King David. And at first, it was their king, King Saul, and he did a very poor job. Eventually, it was King David and then King Solomon. But even those societies that they provided David and Solomon would be a failure. And so ultimately, the the need, the greater need, the second but much greater need that was very obvious is that God would be king of their country. The need for a a saving king. And people should see that there there needs to be a, a saving king who can actually change the hearts of people and actually bring a nation to submit to God's justice and His mercy and His righteousness. Well, as I read that, I couldn't help but think about our own country, and I think we can do the same. We, we see a murder of somebody, not just some individual, but several people over the last many years. And it should call us not to be calloused and indifferent to murder. It should call us to cry out for justice, to cry out for mercy, to cry out for love. And that man... George Floyd was just one of many who have died in recent months, but not just recent months, but recent years unjustly, both at the hands of unscrupulous leaders and people who are supposed to be establishing righteousness, but in the other direction as well. Think about that poor store owner during uh, the riots who was murdered. It should cause us to cry out for justice. But we do it knowing that no government, no human government, just like King David or King Solomon, no human government will ultimately fix this, right? No human government can, can actually, I mean, they can bring some justice, and we ought to cry out for that, and we ought to, to, to pray for that, and we ought to pray for our leaders. And, and each one of us may have different ways in which we do that, and we shouldn't judge each other by the way in which we, we, we cry out for these things. But it should call us ultimately to hope and trust in the coming King, King Jesus, who will set all things right. Everyone on every spectrum of the political spectrum is knowing that now we are sinking into the abyss of racism, tribalism, hatred, fueled by news and politicians and evil people, social media, fueled by our own sin nature. We're fueled to hate and judge, but as Christians, we cannot do that. We have to lead judgment up to God. We're called to love even our enemies. And again, we're going to do this decide personal. It's a very personal thing about how you decide, how you're going to pray for this and engage in this and call for justice and call for righteousness. 
But there is something that we can all do together, and I don't think anybody in this room would disagree with that, and that is that we should pray. We should pray for justice and mercy, even the temporary kind, but ultimately we pray and hope in the ultimate kind of justice and mercy that only Christ can bring. And so, as the elders and I began to talk about some of these things, we thought, you know, we were planning on July 4th to have our our semi-monthly prayer meeting anyway and get that started again, Uh, but we thought, you know, this might be a great opportunity for us to focus our attention on praying for our country. All of these things, not just one of them, but all of these things. There's a lot of evil going on in our country and has been for some time. So, on July 4th, I know that's Independence Day and you may have plans, but on July 4th at 8.30 a.m., We're going to gather here in the sanctuary, and we're going to try to be respectful of all these things. It's not going to be a typical thing where we just sort of cram in one room and a bunch of people pray. We're going to have a little more organized way, but we are going to pray for our country in that time, and I hope you can be here uh, that morning for that. Right after that, 9.30, we'll have our uh, service, our recording, and so some of you may want to stay for that, but again, in a respectful way, and that's the one we sort of reserve for our kapuna and others who feel at risk. So, if you want to mark in your mind right now, that's something that you ought to be at. Uh, We'll come in here and spend some time in prayer, 8.30 July the 4th, all right? Okay, open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 12, and today we come together to another wonderful text. We've been sort of blessed, not sort of, but very blessed the last few months to study the words of Jesus to listen to His Word, and I hope you do something. This is something that sometimes you hear in Christian circles. People say, you know, I go to church, I can leave my problems behind. I can leave them at home, and I can come to church. We don't want you to do that. We want you to bring your problems. We want you to bring your heartache. We want you to bring your sickness. We want you to bring your frustration, your sin. We want you to bring it here and interpret it in the light of God's Word. I hope you do that. I hope you come and you, you think about all the things you're going through. And think about all the frustrations and strife and the issues that are on your heart, and I hope that you use Scripture or listen to Scripture in a way that would bless you and and honor God in the way in which you understand it and obey it. Are you familiar with a word called perspicuity? No, I can tell by the looks of your faces. Most of you have not heard of that word. It's a fancy word. It, it, It really means total and complete clarity understandability, if I can use that word. Well, the Bible, God's Word, theologians say have this characteristic, this character trait of perspicuity. It is perfectly understandable and perfectly clear. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You say, well, I can think of a lot of passages that aren't understandable. I have a lot of problems as I come to Scripture. There are passages that I'm confused about as we come to Scripture. Why are there puzzling, confusing verses? Why do we need you, Pastor John? If the, if the Bible's perfectly clear, why can't we just sit at home and read our Bibles and everything's fine? Well, this is not because it's the Bible's fault or because it's unclear or lacks perspicuity, but because we have failures. Sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's baggage, sometimes it's problems. We bring that to Scripture, and and we need help filtering through our bad worldviews, our our philosophy that we've gained from the world. We need it to be redefined by Scripture, and we need help in understanding that. Other times, it's just because we're removed from Scripture. Many, many years, languages, cultures, idioms, we need that to be explained to us. And sometimes, with all of our best efforts, because of our failure, because of our problems, we come to a passage that seems to be a little bit foggy or unclear. What do we do with those passage, passages? 
First of all, we interpret them in light of the rest of Scripture. They don't stand alone with some new uh, revelation that differs with the rest of Scripture. No, it flows in a line of all the rest of Scripture, so it agrees with the rest of the Bible. So we interpret it in light of the rest of Scripture. The second thing we do is we make note and we remember this fact that even if we can't get all the details right, there is a basic truth that we can gather from that, and usually that basic truth is very clear. Well, in front of us today, we're going to consider a, a paragraph, the first of two paragraphs. We're looking at two paragraphs today, the last two paragraphs of Matthew chapter 12, and the first of those two paragraphs can be a little bit strange-sounding to our ears. It introduces some subjects that maybe we're not used to hearing about, and uh, it sounds sort of strange, and especially if you try to get down into the weeds of trying to interpret and understand every detail of that, uh, being 2,000 years removed and several languages removed, it's sometimes hard to understand. But we can interpret this passage in light of the rest of Scripture, and I do believe this Scripture teaches something that is very plain and very clear about the nature of discipleship. Jesus in this section and all the commentators that I read agree, they may not disagree on all the details, but they all agreed on the basic message of these last two paragraphs, yet it is Jesus dispelling what I call the myth of neutrality. This part of Jesus' words and actions teach us there is no middle ground when it comes to Christ and the gospel. You can't take the neutral position. You cannot remain on the fence. You cannot remain sort of undecided and expect your eternity to be a positive eternity. I think it was C.S. Lewis who first said it this way. He pointed out, you read the Bible, you're forced to conclude that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic, or He is indeed what He claims to be, and that is Lord. You cannot read the Bible and say that Jesus is a good man, but not Lord. No good man encourages people to worship Him. No good man goes around forgiving people's sins. No good man claims to be God. Good people don't do that. They give God the glory. And so Jesus was either a, a liar, or He is a lunatic, or He is indeed what He really is, and that is Lord. There's no middle fence, no, no middle road. There's no riding the fence. The second paragraph is pretty clear, and it's not just about, it's not just about uh, riding the fence in terms of uh, believing in Christ. It's also riding the fence in terms of your discipleship. And He begins to explain that there's no middle road in terms of being a Christian, being a follower of Christ. So let me read to you these two paragraphs. Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to begin in verse 43. I'll go down to the end of the chapter and follow along as I read aloud. When the unclean spirit had gone, has gone out of a person, this is Jesus speaking, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. 
While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me introduce you to another theological phrase, the exclusivity of the gospel. Many of you have heard this. Sometimes it's called the exclusivity of Christ. It doesn't mean that the gospel is is exclusive to certain people. The exclusivity refers to the way to God. It is exclusive that it is through Christ. Paul makes it clear that it's available to whoever will. That there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Paul makes that very clear. So the exclusivity of the gospel or the exclusivity of Christ means that there is only one way to God. There is only one way to heaven. There is no other way. Now, the truth of the matter is, you may not know this, it's so popular to to disbelieve this doctrine uh, that you may think that this is sort of, uh, that idea of, of rejecting this doctrine is sort of common throughout history, but it wasn't in terms of Christians. In fact, for 1,900 years, both Catholic and Protestant believers believed in the exclusivity of the gospel. They all agreed that this is indeed what the Bible teaches. They believed, for instance, that if a Buddhist person were to come to Christ, he has to reject Buddhism and believe in Christ. Any pagan person, whether, whether Muslim or Buddhist or any other uh, belief system, they must reject that paganism and believe in Christ because Christ alone is the way to God. And so for about 1,900 years, by and large, Christians affirmed this doctrine, the exclusivity of the gospel. But around 1900, it started in academia long before that, but around 1900, many Christians or people who called themselves Christians, began to reject this idea. They began to embrace what you might call pluralism or even universalism. They say things that you've probably heard. Who are we to say Jesus is the only way, that we have the only true religion? Or There are many good people of different religions out there. Surely God will have mercy on them if they believe in some sort of moral religion as long as they believe sincerely. Or it's prideful to think that we have the only true God. Or there are many paths to God. All of these different religions are the same path. As long as it's moral and good, everyone will make it to God. Someone might even pose the question in a different way or reject exclusivity in another way, particularly regarding the authority of the Word of God. And this person might say something like this, who are we to think that we have the only divine text or sacred writing? Who are we to say the Bible and not the Quran or the Book of Mormon are not also sacred? Who are we to pridefully claim that the Bible is the only divine perfect word? Like I said, this is called pluralism or universalism. It's a very contemporary, modern way of thinking, and sadly, most Christians, most people who call themselves Christians today, reject the exclusivity of Christ and accept some sort of form 
of universalism or pluralism. I know that because in 1964, the Catholic Church and the Second Vatican, 1964, declared that even though Catholicism, they believe Catholicism is the best way to God, the, 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 the most righteous way to get to God, they decreed in that 1964 proclamation that many other people of other religions who never believe in Jesus will also end up in heaven as well. Well, what does the Bible say? I would contest that anyone who rejects the exclusivity of Christ is not so because, does so because ultimately they reject the truth of the Bible. The Bible is very plain about this. The Bible is very clear about this, so clear that you have to alter your belief about the Bible, about the nature of Scripture in order to reject it. What does the Bible say? Let me give you a few verses. Maybe you want to write these down so that you have them for reference. John 3, 16. Let's just start there. For God so loved the world that He provided many paths that people could go along to make it to heaven. No. That He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And what does Jesus say later on in that chapter, John 3, 36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Very exclusive, isn't it? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, you've heard this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 17, 3, the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Acts chapter 4, we heard this earlier, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 10, 43, to Him meaning Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, he's saying, is available for all who believe. There is no distinction. Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, speaking of unbelievers, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And again, what we heard earlier, 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But again, you cannot truly believe Scripture and say Jesus is not the only Lord He is not God. He did not die, or maybe He just provided some option. If you believe in pluralism or inclusivism in that sense, universalism, you must reject the Bible. You must reject what the Word of God says of Christ. Now, the Bible teaches exclusivism in terms of the way to God, and that is through Christ alone. Well, Jesus here in our passage has something to say about this doctrine, and I believe you'll agree that He takes it even a a further step. In the first paragraph, we just read it, Jesus' main point is that you cannot merely think that cleaning up your life without following and surrender to Christ is sufficient. Just being moral is not good enough. 
That's the neutrality of self-righteousness. And then the second paragraph, he takes it a step further. You cannot just stand on the outside as sort of a, a distant peripheral follower of Christ and sort of like the things of Christ but not give up everything and become a true disciple. There is no neutrality with Jesus. Either you are a 100% surrendered disciple. You may make mistakes, but either you are a 100% surrendered disciple or you're not in the kingdom, period. So, if you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, the myth of self-righteous neutrality. That's what Jesus presents in the first paragraph, that sort of strange paragraph about a demon going through waterless spaces, seeking rest, and then bringing back more demons worse than itself. Let me read this to you again. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, speaking of the demon, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes back, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now this text, as I've said, presents us with a lot of strange, confusing things we're not familiar with. I know that back then they would have understood much better. I think particularly His disciples would have understood exactly what He was talking about. Clearly, He is talking about demons here and a demon leaving a person. Now, we don't know for sure if He's talking about demon possession. We we talked about that some months ago, a demon possession and what that looks like and what that really is. But He definitely is talking about some sort of demonic oppression or demonic control or demonic presence in a person's life. And this demon leaves a person, and it talks about going through waterless places, and there are all kinds of speculation as I read about this. Some of them a little humorous about what that means. Someone was pointing out, oh, demons love dry places, like Eva Beach, for instance. They love dry places. And he really was, one of the, this author I was reading really, really was trying to make the case that demons love deserts and dry places. I think that'd be hard to prove, and hard to prove that even Jesus meant that. Uh, there were other suggestions, one of them maybe a little bit better than others, that demons like to control bodies, bodies being, you know, the, the human body being made up of a lot of water, and they wanted to control some sort of body, and sort of explains maybe why Jesus would have cast the demons into, into the pigs after they controlled the, the demon-possessed men there at Gadaria. But I don't know. I think that's a little bit speculative. We don't really know what exactly this means. And then you have this business about a demon going and getting spirits that were evil, more evil than itself. And so it makes you kind of think, well, are there sort of ranks of how evil a spirit is? I mean, they have sort of not that evil spirits and they need more evil spirits. Very confusing about that. And what's this business about a demon and getting these spirits and are all unbelievers? Someone asked, are all unbelievers possessed? I don't think it's teaching that, and I don't think we can come away with that specific conclusion. I thought about spending some time going through all the ridiculous things, but we won't do that. This is indeed a confusing passage, but we can see the basic idea, and again, all the commentators agreed, that Jesus was trying to dispel the myth of neutrality. You can't just clean up your life and believe that's enough. I'll just straighten my life out and, you know, I don't have to believe anything. I can just sort of be neutral, religiously speaking. Surely God will be okay with that. 
Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees and their friends, the, the scribes. We, we know about these people. They accused Him of being possessed of Satan himself. They re- rejected Him, committed the unpardonable sin. They had rejected all the testimony of the Spirit and dug their heels in and continued to do so. And Jesus says, by doing so, you join the wicked and adulterous generation. And this is language we notice there that, that points back to the Old Testament as, as the people who had the testimony of the Spirit, the oracles of God, the Word of God, they rejected the testimony of the Spirit dug their heels in. And these Pharisees and scribes, by rejecting Jesus, joined the wicked and adulterous generation, which Jesus refers to in this passage as well. And Jesus says this demon leaves and then finds the soul like a, a house that's been cleaned up, swept, and put in order. Clearly, this means a person who's gotten their, their morals straight. They've cleaned up their life, morally speaking. And these are the Pharisees, right? There was no one more moral than the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They did all the right things. They, they went through all the religious obligations. I mean, these people, and Jesus would later say, you even tithe your mint and your cumin. And you think about going to your spice cabinet and taking a little razor blade and separating out. Nobody does that. They're so careful to tithe everything. They're so careful to do everything they're supposed to be doing. They even tithe the, the smallest things. Not only do that, and we've discussed this before, but not only do that, they add laws and they keep those laws. Hundreds, if not thousands of laws, the Pharisees were responsible for in terms of adding to the Word of God. And they obeyed, ostensibly they obeyed all those laws. They cleaned up their lives. They kept all the religious obligations. And Jesus is pointing out in this passage, this gets them nowhere with God. He says, in fact, the last condition of that person is worse than the first. I don't have to tell you how self-righteousness is the most destructive and deceptive spirit that a person can have. I mean, at least a person who sins and indulges and knows he's sinning and acknowledges his sin, at least he, even if he doesn't believe in Jesus, at least he knows that he's a bad person. I've had people tell me after I've witnessed to them and give them the gospel, well, pastor, I'm going to hell. I'm a bad person. At least that person is not deceived. The self-righteous person is deceived. The self-righteous person feels secure in their position with God. They are sure of their salvation. The self-righteous person takes pride in themselves. The self-righteous person looks down their nose and looks down upon other people as though he's better than them. The self-righteous person takes great care to spread their version of self-righteousness to others, mainly their children and their disciples. This idea that salvation can be obtained through self-righteousness is a worse condition than the first. They've cleaned up their lives, and they've deceived themselves. Those spirit, the spirit that's in them or around them in terms of demonic Influence is worse than even the first. They've rejected fully or perhaps even partially their need of Christ. Self-righteousness, if you didn't know this, self-righteousness is the core of every false religion. It is the basis of even false versions of Christianity. Every successful false religion is based on this single principle. I can be good enough to merit a positive afterlife, to reach nirvana, to get 70 virgins, 
to make it to heaven. I can do enough good things to earn my way to a positive afterlife. It's the essence of all false religions. And of all the people who were deceived by this, it was the scholars, it was the scribes, it was the Pharisees, it was the people who on the surface had the cleanest of lives and wicked and an adulterous and evil generation, Jesus calls them. You cannot just clean up your act and be right with God. That's a myth. You need the righteousness of Christ to cover you. It's a myth that you can just sort of be distant from Christ and take a neutral position on Christ and say, I don't have to worry about Christ or believe in Christ. I can just sort of be neutral about these things, clean up my life, and hope that God has mercy on on me. He will not have mercy on you. Your condition is worse than even if you knew of your sin. Well, this brings us to a second myth. Number two, the myth of mild affirmation neutrality. Verse 46, while he was still speaking, behold, that the people behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. They replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, the key here is seeing that little phrase there in verse 46 where it says, Jesus' mother and brothers stood where? On the outside. They're on the periphery. They certainly have believed some things about Christ. We know Mary and, and the brothers of Jesus would eventually believe in Christ. We know James became the, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem even wrote a book of the Bible. Uh, Mary, we know, we see her at the cross. She believed in Christ. But at this point, it's clear that she believes some things. She is confused, and she's not quite a follower of Christ. She's standing on the outside. And I don't believe that's just a a physical description of her location there. And we know that because as we, we read about Mary in the Gospels, we realize that it took her a while to be a follower of Christ. There was one point that, that she and, and her other sons were, were talking to some people about Christ, and they said, we're trying to get him because we think he's out of his mind. And my family has said that about me for years. It's easy for family to kind of wonder, ah, is he really? I mean, I know there was all these miracles that happened. I mean, here is Mary, this miracle happened in her womb. She, know, womb. she knows this, but it was still hard for her to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah. Maybe he's just out of his mind. That took Mary a while. Believing some things, affirming some things, having some kind of distant peripheral relationship with God does not make you a disciple. That's what Jesus is saying, very simply. Mild affirmation, mild belief, half-hearted devotion, that is not true faith. You must surrender all. You must deny yourself. Follow Christ. You must nestle up to Jesus as close as you could possibly be. No longer stand on the periphery. Who is my mother and brothers? 
Not the ones who stand on the outside, not the ones who look back and affirm some things and sort of distantly affirm Jesus. It's those who drop everything. This was a known truth about these disciples, these men who followed Jesus around. These are the men who dropped everything they were doing and followed after Christ. Who's my real family, Jesus said. It's these men who've forsaken all to follow me. That is the family of God. I I cannot help but think that there are a number of people here in this room, maybe watching or listening later on, and this message must be for you. You've fallen for this myth of neutrality in terms of standing on the periphery, sort of affirming some things about God and Jesus, and sort of standing back and thinking, well, you know, I believe those things. Sure, sure He rose from the dead and died for my sins. and I know and believe all those things, but you've never truly surrendered everything. You've never f- dropped everything and followed Christ. And perhaps today God is telling you self-righteousness, loose, distant, lackadaisical, lukewarm following Christ is not genuine faith. It's time to step up, surrender all, believe truly in Christ's death, life, death, and resurrection, accomplish the very thing you need, and you need to believe and follow Him. Well, all of us, even true disciples, what a great reminder it is, isn't it, that what we've signed up for is not just sort of some half-hearted social club where we show up once in a while sing a few songs and go home and forget about the whole thing. Well, we deny ourselves daily. We discipline ourselves to follow Jesus Christ. So, let's take a moment to pray that God would empower us in our response to His Word even now. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth that You've given us in Your Word. We pray right now for those who may be uh, trying to be neutral about the truths of Christ, maybe standing in a distant way from Christ, maybe thinking neither negative nor positive thoughts about Christ. They think that they can clean up their lives, they can do a few moral things and be okay. Lord, convict them of their sin, call them to the righteousness of Christ that He provides, to the payment of sin that He provides, to the power over sin that He provides in His resurrection. Call them to salvation. I pray the same thing for those who may be mildly affirm Jesus. I pray that You would open their hearts and their eyes to the fact that they must surrender everything. And perhaps the reason they've fallen for sin again and again and have failure in their life is because they've never truly repented and followed Christ. So, Lord, give them the grace they need to obey the gospel and believe in Jesus. Lord, for all of us, we need this great reminder that what we've signed up for, all of us believers, that we've, we've committed our lives to Christ. We've committed our lives to following Him and believing like He believes and talking like He talks and acting like He acts and being the body of Christ to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our family even. What we've signed up for, Lord, is to be true disciples. So, Lord, I pray that our lives would reflect that desire and that commitment. Holy Spirit, move in us. Make these words real in our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.